Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. I'm your host, Brittany Melton. And I'm your co-host, Laura Muñoz. And we are here today with Sharon Mander, a PhD student in history. Sharon, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's nice to be here and thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> okay, we're going to hop right into it. So, Sharon, it's, it is really great to have you here, but I want to start off really generally with just what you see yourself doing with your research. Like, what broadly would your research look like, do you think? So, in general, I do history, but specifically I do environmental history, which is kind of a newer history. I say newer, it started in the 60s and 70s, but like now that's like 60 years old. So I don't know what you consider new. And the big, big picture of history of humanity is very new. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So it started with the 60s and 70s environmental movement. And I would come up with my own example uh, definition of what environmental history is, but I'm gonna steal an answer from some famous historians instead. Uh, so my answer would be that it's, uh, since we the environment is central to uh, human affairs, it does, we can do historical research for it. And in, in that sense, there's three aspects you can look at. You can look at how the environment it has been itself and how it has impacted humans. Two, you can look at how we think about the environment and three, you can look at how we use the environment in historical research. So as I've been doing my research and my comps, which um, I don't need to, like I should define, but I feel like if I do, the graduate coordinator would not let, uh, would be upset that nobody's applying to the PhD program anymore because <laughs> they are very rigorous. Uh, so, in anyways, one of my fields is environmental history and I have to read a bunch of books on it. And as I've been reading about it, there's so many different aspects that have interested me. I just read a, a, a book today about poachers in uh, the US and Yellowstone and other areas in the Grand Canyon. And I, the other day I read a book about wolves and their symbolism. And my research specifically looks at the Halifax explosion. And I want to see how that has impacted people's lives and the environment around Halifax, Nova Scotia. So, yeah. That's the greatest introduction that I've heard. <laughs> <Because laughs> you really went from the general to specific. So that's very interesting. So can you give us a little bit of context of this Halifax explosion? How was the world? Which time? Uh, why did it happen? Just like what was around that explosion? Okay, um, so in the broad terms, I'm moving my hands, but nobody can see this. But in the broad terms, I'll start out with what uh, the, it's it takes place in 1917. So I'll start with the generally what's happening in Canada at that time. So 1917, obviously uh, for you history buffs out there, we're, we're in World War I during that time and Canada is participating due to its connection to Britain. And because of that, Halifax serves as a supply port for the war overseas. So we get a lot of ships coming in and out of the port, a lot of supplies moving, troops moving from Canada to uh, Europe. And the two ships we want to focus on, though, in our, in, well, in my research, <laughs> are the, IMO, the SS IMO and, uh, or IMO. I'm going to go with IMO, uh, the, a Norwegian ship, and the SS Mont Blanc, a French ship. So the explosion occurred on December 6, 1917. It occurred around 
uh, a little bit after 9 a.m. There was some contention before about when it occurred, but a lot of uh, people who survived wrote in saying like, it has to be after 9 a.m., 9.06 specifically, because uh, I was in school during that time and we started our, our school activities right after nine. So it couldn't have been before nine. So anyways, uh, we know it's a little bit after nine and the two ships ended up colliding in the harbor. And they didn't explode right away. It wasn't just like, oh, here, we, connect, we connected and now we explode. In, at first, uh, the IMO, no, the Mont Blanc was ca caught on fire. And a lot of smoke uh, came up and people came to the harbor to witness what happened. And they wanted to see, oh, there's a ship on fire. What's, uh, that seemed really interesting. Let's go look at it. And like this idea of like pure fascination with looking at a fire. Uh, I can kind of understand it. I remember coming home uh, one time, a friend and I were walking home from high school. There was smoke in the distance and we were going down our hill and our high school was on top of a hill. So we're going down, a car drove by and told us, a, a sweet lady told us, please don't go that way. There's danger because there's a car on fire. And we're like, oh, well, we have to go see this. And we went to go see it. So I can sympathize with seeing um, the fascination of seeing something on fire. But so a bunch of people went, one of these people was Barbara Orr, if I were to give a story. Um, she becomes a central figure around like the, mem the memory of Halifax explosion, but that's not where my research focuses. But anyways, on this day, she heard the smoke and the commotion. She went to go look at the, uh, uh, at the ships. But because she went, uh, she wanted to grab one of her friends or maybe it was a cousin. Uh, so she went to her house, and at that time, the uh, the crew of the SS Mont Blanc were trying to warn people because they were the only ones that knew that there was explosives ab aboard the ship, whereas the IMO was, I believe, relatively um, free of explosive material or material in general. And anyways, as she was going, the she heard a sound go off, her vision go black, and she ended up on top of Fort Needham. It's like a hill. So she went flying a great distance. And uh, that's actually where they actually ended up putting the Memorial Bell Tower to remember the explosion in the 1980s. But anyways, once the explosion occurred, it killed, the initial blast killed 2,000 people. It left more than 10,000 people homeless. It leveled 5.2 square kilometers of Halifax. It, uh, and then uh, it also damaged more than 13,000 buildings. And if that wasn't enough, uh, the blast also created a tsunami, which hit the shores, also killing 200 people in both Halifax and Dartmouth combined, I believe. And then right after that, a few minutes later, it started something called the Black Rain started, which people purported as like, raining black soot and ash and it dyed people very black like to the point where the when the first bodies came to the morgue people mistook them for residents of africaville uh, uh area near halifax where black canadians resided so uh and then if that wasn't enough as these, all these people were left homeless and without shelter the huge snowstorm hit halifax and so all these people were left of needing relief. And luckily people from around Canada and Boston and other areas 
heard and rushed over to help. Uh, the port was eventually operational again after a few days because of they needed it for uh, the war effort. But when Prime Minister Borden came after hearing the, um, the news, he said it was like one of the battlefields over in Europe. That's how devastating it was. And Halifax itself took some time to reconstruct uh, its cities and during and certain areas that needed more tending to than others. And uh, but a lot of people were also severely injured. I think one of the most common studied injuries is uh, about the eye because a lot of people went blind because the explosion blew glass into their into people's faces, blinding a lot of people. But eventually, in the 1980s, they erected the Memorial Bell Tower to for people to remember those who lost their lives that day. Yeah. Well, it was incredible, incredibly informative because. <laughs> I certainly remember learning about this in school, in history class, but one, not to this extent, and two, my memory is quite foggy on what I learned <laughs> in high school. <laughs> so, but I'm really curious about what brought you to this topic, because it, it is something I'm familiar with, mm -hmm. but not super familiar with. So is it like, have you always had an interest in doing research on the Maritimes or research mm -hmm. on like World War One? So I guess I'll start with my fascination with environmental history. So the first time I heard about environmental history was a second year history class. Uh, it was, let's just say the class was interesting. I don't know how much I learned in that class, but it was definitely interesting. The prof was really awesome though. Um, uh, but he brought, it was a class about historical thought. And he, one day he brought, he basically made students do a presentation about certain fields. And one of the last presentations was environmental history. At the time, I was like, oh, whatever. Uh, it, the second year, I didn't really pay attention. <laughs> uh, but then as time went on, I finished my undergrad in history, and then I went on to do my master's. And at one point, I had to do, we had to take courses in your master's. And I was going to do a directed reading with my supervisor. But my supervisor is really awesome. His name was Andrew Hunt, but he always took on a lot of stuff. So I told my Dr. Hunt, I'm gonna just not do this directed reading and so I'm gonna stand and take another course because you have way too much on your uh, load already. So I ended up taking an environmental history course, which was set in er medieval to early modern. So, and it was a really interesting course. It was taught by Dr. Stephen Bernarski over at University of Waterloo, but uh, he works with the affiliate college at St. Jerome's. But it was really interesting and I got to learn a lot of things and I got to see basically how I, it was almost like a history that I've been looking for for a really long time because I, I'm not a big fan of like state centric models or politics or the nitty gritty kind of things. And I know there's still politics involved in environmental history, but there's something, I don't know, something caught on to me that I liked. I liked hearing those weird stories about like how people how goats hooves changed because of where they were or like what people did to the environment or things like the great hunts uh kings and uh lords went on and it was really interesting to me and i ended up writing a paper about gardens monastic herb gardens and it was a definitely an interesting paper because originally i was going to write about like hygiene in nuremberg but it was so boring. And I was, as I was researching it and I was like, I don't want to do this. And I changed it the last minute to 
and then COVID hit and my access to libraries and archives got hampered real bad. And this was like the early stages. So I was like, okay, I still don't want to do the hygiene, but I need to do something. And luckily I have medieval books at home and I just popped one open and a lot of them had primary documents. And I started seeing this theme on gardens. So I wrote a paper on gardens. Really fun. I liked it. It's one of my favorite papers <laughs> I've ever written. <laughs> but I really started liking environmental history. But PhD wasn't really where I wanted to go originally. Uh, I actually wanted just to finish my MA and figure things out from there. I uh, took some time off after my MA, like a year or so. And I just worked. But then I was like, you know what? I really want to do a PhD. I'm really liking the readings I do in, for environmental history. And I kind of want to do that. So, but I'm like, I need a topic. I'm like, I, I just don't want to come in super blind and not have an idea of where I want to go. And I was thinking about it. I'm like, oh, what's something cool? I'm like, these are cool. I'm like, but at the end of the day, I'm like, I need to figure out something I like. And uh, growing up, I used to love natural disasters. Um, not so much anymore uh, because it's funny because one of my, I think one time me and my cousin were talking, he's like, oh my God, it's a huge storm outside. It's so awesome. And I'm like, yeah, except for all those people that don't have shelter. <laughs> so my idea, I still find them fascinating, but I don't like love them as like, I love like the idea of a storm hitting our house or something because I don't know, it just changed. And so I was like, I need a topic that I really can research. And uh, during my time in my MA, somebody had done a project on, I forget her names, but and I feel bad, but shout out to her. Uh, <laughs> she did it on the Halifax explosion. And uh, she did it more of like a history of the explosion kind of thing. I don't remember exactly what her, all of her topics were because we weren't even though we were at the same cohort, we really weren't because I was at Waterloo and she was at Laurier and our programs basically were a, like a triple program, basically with Guelph, Laurier and Waterloo combined together. So we were the same year, but we weren't the same cohort because we came from different schools. But anyway, she was doing one on the Halifax explosion. And for some reason it popped into my head when I was doing some research and I'm like, Let's me, let me look into this. And as I was reading, about it, I ran into a quote saying, the heat from the blast was so intense and hot that it melted uh, anchors on nearby ships. And I don't know if that's true. I've never been able to find if that's true, uh, but I'm like, okay, that's interesting. But it spurred my thought of like, if the devastation to steel was that bad, I wonder how the rest of the environment was and and then I started learning about the black rain and the pollution and the snowstorm hitting and all these different things and it started to spiral and then I started to think about the junk or like the wreckage of the explosion like how do cities or places that get in a devastated area deal with all the junk and wreckage that they have does do they repurpose it do they throw it out where do they throw it out uh, and what about the water how was how polluted was that and or and filled with junk and then I started wondering uh, about the geography for some reason I'm like I started thinking about the harbor itself and I read some papers about things like the tsunami's uh, height was proportional to the depths of the harbor and one time I went to a talk this year by Roger Sardi who's a prof over at Laurier 
and he should be retired now. Last, last time he was telling me he should be retired at least. But uh, I went to his talk and it was about the Halifax explosion because he wrote a book on it. And it is, in my mind, one of the most comprehensive books. It came out like in 2020. And if so, if you ever want to read a book, uh, search like Roger Sardi, Halifax Explosion. He edited it, sorry, not uh, uh, wrote it. But anyways, it's really good if you want to learn about the topic. But in his uh, presentation, he talked about a small instance about railway track and railway design. And he was saying how it kind of helped uh, the, the people in Halifax because they designed the railways based on the right type of soil and the right type of earth because they couldn't just build tracks however they wanted. They needed certain aspects to work out for the train to be functional. And I'm not going to quote him because I don't want to misquote him, but I feel like it, it either hampered or helped the situation. So that got me, that's what I kind of wanted to focus on in my research anyways. And that's kind of what started my research yeah that's super interesting and it falls i feel like you already answered my question because i wanted <laughs> to ask like what's the question that is going to guide your research or like your mm -hmm. main but i see that there are many questions environmentally related mm -hmm. that you will be interesting on on answering but i i feel like you probably will have to focus on some like more specific aspects so are you in, like, is your main goal to be able to describe the environmental conditions or the environmental fact, uh, uh, impacts of the explosion? Or wh what is it? What is the, the question that, we'll, that you will try to answer with this research? Mm, well, this is a hard question, but I'll answer it anyway. <laughs> because I'm in my first year and I haven't been able to do a lot of primary research. I wouldn't be able to give you a perfect answer but the things I have been looking at are kind of like the reconstruction of the area. There was one time uh, the idea, the places that were devastated, they wanted to rebuild it as like a green space almost and function it as like more environmentally friendly. And they, they had all these grand ideas about what, what it was gonna look like and how it would impact the community and what it feels like to be a green space. So as a question, I think I would, go with how hmm, I'm not sure how to go with the question but an idea I want it's a reconstruction where I wanted to look at the most so I could give you here's a question but for all I know it's going to change in a couple of weeks <laughs> so, yeah and kind of where I'm like well I'm I'm out of media studies so mm. my immediate interest is what kind of texts do you look at because we're talking before tv and so and and you already mentioned archives so in the archive are we talking like i'm trying to wrap my head around this uh is is it radio is it news like um environmental like documents mm. that have been kept what are what do you what do you perceive as being like a main text that you would look at for your studies yeah so this is interesting because it's one of the things that i found a little easier than i almost a little easier or a little different from when I did my medieval stuff because when I did the medieval stuff, finding texts were much harder. They definitely needed to be translated because I'm not, a, I'm not, I don't know my Latin or any language that required. And those were a lot more interesting. Whereas here, the documents I would use are 
there's pictures for sure. You can look at them, but there's also a lot of interviews done with survivors. So a person who did a lot of work was Janet Kitts on the subject. And she interviewed almost, she interviewed a ton of survivors and you can watch their interviews or listen to them over in the archives, uh, in the Halifax archives. I forget what this place is called, but you can look over them and you can also request them to be sent to you. But a lot of them talked about what it was like, like almost like waking up to the blast. You know what I mean? Like well, how, they're, how they remember the area, what it was like to see all this devastation. But there's also documents of like newspaper reporting that talk about what the environment was like. But then I was, because I wanted to do a GIS thing, which is like um, geography mapping system. I was talking to one of the people over at uh, Weldon Library, his name is Zach McDonald. Uh, and he was talking about uh, firehouse archives and looking at uh, kind of like their maps and reconstructions because they would have things that about that time as well uh, that they recorded. So it would be a bunch of different documents, but also because environmental history is a lot more interdisciplinary. So I've been, one of the courses I took this term was about uh, environmental change over at the geography department. And it was a really great course where I learned how to use scientific methods to see how environments have changed and how, how you can use them. Things like dendrology to see scarring of trees from fire uh, and different lake sediments and ideas. So I wonder, so part of my research was I would like to use more scientific methods as well as on top of my historical archives. So, but we'll see how that goes. That's always tough. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's uh, something that also makes me think about like mapping of, for example, the species or how many like animals died. Um, because if, if it was closer to a port, maybe the water wasn't too deep and it also has an impact on the underwater life. Do you, mm -hmm. are you interested in like also evaluating something uh, regarding the sea itself? Yeah, I was actually thinking about that too because, but I don't know what the ecosystem around the harbor is like. What got me thinking about it, it was, it's a weird thing, but like, you know, like dynamite fishing? You just like throw a dynamite in a lake, kills a bunch of fish, they surface up, you take them. And I was mm -hmm. like, I wonder what happened with the explosion. Would something similar happen there? So that is something I want to look at. And I was debating on how I would even get documents of those. Would like people leave diaries of like, oh, uh, there was a bunch of fish just loading in, or would like the people who cleaned up the harbor recorded such things? Things like that. Yeah, because also I guess they will feed a lot on this type, like that will be like a big source of food mm -hmm. for them. I, I don't really know a lot, but I can imagine it being a port. You do have food that comes from the sea. So did they change or or did they encounter that they didn't have food for a while given the explosion or that's yeah. So for sure, cool. because their livelihoods, a lot of there were would be a lot of fishermen as well. So that's those were also things I was thinking about. But I was like, because I haven't been able to go to the archive. It's like, how do I know? How do I look at which types of documents would I look at for to find that information? But we'll see.
<laughs> I feel like you have to go there and like <laughs> make a description of everything that you see and mm. you know how it is so you can reconstruct based on here and then yeah. you so but you should ask for some you know travel grants <laughs> yeah, well I will be going next summer cool. uh, because right now I have to finish my comprehensive exams which are in November and then I have to do my proposal defense in April next year not this year um so once that's done i'll be able to do my research and i'm hoping to leave to halifax sooner than later so that'd be nice well i have one more question for you yep. because in it both you've mentioned it already that you just enjoy studying things that you think are cool yes. and i think that's very cool too and so my my final question is what kind of advice would you give to someone who's considering like they want to study just something that they think is cool like what how do you go about doing that is there pressure when you just want to study things that you think are cool uh i know that it's pretty open in media studies mm -hmm. and i don't know if it's quite the same in history to just like do whatever you think is cool <laughs> it's definitely a lot harder because i feel like you have to if you're like oh i want to do this and then like quickly switch over to a different discipline like within history it's a lot harder for you to study up on it and be like considered like an expert in the field so it's a lot harder i'm coming into the phd i'm like okay well i have to become an expert in three things now and those three things became environmental canadian and history of science and technology and I'm like, and then if I were to become an expert in something else later down in my life, I would have to read another bunch of books to demonstrate or do work or something. So it's a lot harder, but it's not undoable. There's a prof over at the department who is really great. And I think he just, he almost does kind of like that. He kind of just does whatever. And I like him a lot. His name is uh, William Turkel. So I would ask his advice, if anything, if you had a question, because <laughs> he seems to like, he seems to be all over the place and doing a lot of cool research all the time. So uh, for me, I don't know what advice that I would give. Um, I was talking to a friend about what I sent my supervisor, uh, one of my supervisors, uh, Alan McEachern, as my initial proposal. And he's like, you basically didn't tell him anything. You're just like, hey, I want to do something with you. And I kind of want to do this. Do you want to chat? And then he's just like, sure. And so we chatted. And whereas he's like, your email to him was like a few sentences long. So, <laughs> so it was kind of like, oh, I wanted to do work with uh, Alan McEachern. And uh, there's, he, and I wanted to do environmental history. And then, so I emailed him and I'm like, I have a project I wanted to work on. And then he's like, he, he asked me what other projects I was thinking about too. And other universities and stuff. And I was like, I also have this idea for the Halifax explosion, but I can't find anybody suitable for it. And he gave some recommendations, but at the end of the day, we decided that he could do it uh, if we, it was co-supervised with Jonathan Vance over at the department as well. So those two ended up being my co-supervisors and I really like the topic and we'll see how it goes, but who knows, maybe in a year, if I'm ever back on, you'll be like, oh my God, you switched this topic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> keep it I, open. I, think, I think we're running out of time, but I wanted to close with, uh, I, this, the, the question, the answer to this question don't need to be like, because sometimes I don't like asking it. 
because I, I know that it's annoying not because not everything needs to have an impact, <laughs> but do you, do you have, or do you have any expectation on the impact of your research? What do you think studying uh, uh, environmental history and specifically the environmental history of the Halifax explosion is important or, or which kind of impact could it, could it have? Mm. Okay, this is a question I know I need to be able to answer. And unfortunately, I cannot answer it for you right now. <laughs> if you ask me a couple months from now, I will definitely answer it for you because I'll have a better idea. <laughs> cool, yeah, that's, that's, I feel like that's also what doing a graduate study studies means. It's mm -hmm. like kind, kind of things you discover on the way. Like, yeah. why is this important? That's something that you can answer later on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and with that, I'll close this out. So, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Brittany Melton, and my co-host was Laura Munoz Bayana. We've been speaking with Sharon Mander. The, uh, this episode was also produced by Laura Munoz Bayana. If you'd like to get involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select episodes have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a good night.